0: April Fool's Day is when you're listening to this episode. This is episode number 33 of 33. 32, because, boy, I can't count, and I feel like I'm starting off rough. Well, this is 33. Joke's on you. I've got my – so I've – okay. No, nope, we're going to – I'm looking here. I've got th- literally three different numbers in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, happy, merry, April Fool's Day to everybody out there listening to us. We are the Drunken UX Podcast. You are listening to episode number 33, not 32, not 31. That's a joke you're not going to get because, well, I didn't record it. Um, no, I did record it. Maybe I'll throw it in some B-roll. That'll be where that lands. We are going to be talking today to Brian Olandike. He is the systems developer at Penn State and also lead developer on the Hacks Project about his project, the Hacks well, it's the Hacks Editor and Hacks CMS. It's uh, a, a suite of things, so to speak. Um, unfortunately, Aaron can't be with us today. He's traveling and being all fancy up in Chicago, so you'll just have me and Brian to entertain you, and I hope that's just good enough. And if it ain't, well, that's what you get with me. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Feenan, and uh, if you want to check us out, be sure to catch us on Twitter or Facebook. We are slash Drunken UX. Hit us on Instagram at slash drunken ux podcast. We share drinks and whatnot. And maybe I'll throw some options up there and let somebody uh pick the the drink I have next uh, episode. That might be a fun little change. Be sure to check out our great sponsors, NewCloud. They're at newcloud.com slash drunken ux. Uh, they do interactive maps illustrations, they have a whole platform thing they do. It's pretty neat and uh stop by if you need a map, I guess. Uh let's see. From there, uh, let's talk about what I am drinking anyway. Uh, I'm sure uh, Aaron is drinking with us in spirit, I have no doubt. Uh, in spirits. There's a, <laughs> there's a joke in there somewhere. Uh, I'm uh, off my scotch this evening. I switched over to bourbon, and I'm having some Makers 46 this evening. Um, I've discovered that as far as bourbons go, I really enjoy Makers 46. It's very, It's got a sweetness to it, the nice. size. Also, 47% alcohol, so... We'll see how I'm doing by the end of the night. Brian, what do you got over there? I have a
1: distillery from Pennsylvania called uh, McLaughlin Distillery. It's north of Pittsburgh. It's uh, Devil's Juice Number 5, which is a toasted whiskey, and it is 60% alcohol, which I am drinking um, with one ice cube and uh, two Airhead gummies, because I am strange.
0: Holy Christ, 60%. That uh, that will put a burn on you.
1: The devil, man. It says it's it says devil's juice. So
0: appropriately named. I lo- I love the name, and now I want to know what the other uh, what one through four are. <laughs> More importantly, is there a six? <laughs> Nobody knows. Uh, what is it? I don't know. And maybe you, this is outside your wheelhouse, but I, I've got family in Pennsylvania, and I discovered visiting uh, once the uh, custom we'll say of having to go to the the package store to buy alcohol if you need like beer or something like you can't just go to the grocery store and get oh
1: yeah yeah that's right that is that stupid thing that we have to do um yeah you have to go to a dedicated store to pick up beer if you're going to get more than 24 of them um you have to you can now at a grocery store get like six packs and wine but you can't get liquor and if you want liquor, you have to go to a state
0: store, yeah. which is is state owned. That's uh... so you have three different
1: stores for your trip to have a party. <laughs> that's
0: a that's a different uh, thing. I wonder if the like for a distillery, if it's more or less difficult than elsewhere. Um, it used to be
1: awful, but then they clearly changed some regulations because there's about three years ago, all these little distilleries and uh, started popping up.
0: I feel like it's hilly enough there, though. You're like at the, up there, the top stretch of the Appalachian Mountains. Just, uh, and you just hide in them hills. They'll never find you. Just get a still go and you're good to go. This isn't West Virginia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we are talking this evening about the hacks project. And this is something that was brought to my attention, uh, by a friend of mine who is, um, involved in the capacity. Uh, I don't, I don't know if uh, she's working directly on it or not, but she was very, uh, very proud of what Brian was doing with this. And I got to looking at it and this was, uh, prior to uh the launch of WordPress 5.0 when uh, this was pointed out to me and what Brian's working on is effectively a block content editor for everyone. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's uh why should WordPress get a really cool editor? Why can't uh why can't any other platform have it?
0: Can can we give it to Typo3? Uh
1: yeah, I, I have looked into to Typo3. Um the the integrations on the back end are trivial as a, as a key difference between us and and Gutenberg, but hacks is short for, um, headless authoring experience. Yeah, And it's just really effing cool (laughs) to
0: say it. Uh, yeah. So for, uh, folks who need like a baseline here, basically what Gutenberg is, is kind of what hacks is. Now they do some things differently. They've taken different approaches to stuff, but from the user experience standpoint, they both fill that gap of, uh, you know, what is that experience when you are authoring content in whatever platform you happen to be authoring it in? And if you're not familiar, I want to take one quick step back to talk about block editors in general, uh, because we've been using this phrase Gutenberg. We keep saying this a lot lately. Um, you know, everything is Gutenberg. And I know there was even a fight at one point before it launched that they wanted to stop using the name Gutenberg uh, because they were worried that it, people wouldn't know what it meant in the actual product. Uh, And yet here we are, they, they clearly left it in. So, Uh, but before that we had the WYSIWYG, the what you see is what you get editor. And in WordPress, it was TinyMCE. There have certainly been others along the way. Um, And what it is when we look at this, WYSIWYG editors have been around for 15 years at this point, probably a little longer than that even. And they've taken the idea of Content authoring from word processing documents, so they have similar toolbar setups. They generally reflect what you would have seen in Microsoft Word or Open Office or whatever, because that was what people were familiar with from a content authoring standpoint. What it does is, at the end of the editing session, you're given this blob of content that basically encapsulates everything that you wrote in that session. That's what a WYSIWYG editor does. Uh, if you need to do stuff internal to that, if you want to lay out that content, if you want to give it some presentation, the only way that you could do that was to learn to hand code. Uh, the w- The metaphor I've used uh, talking about this with some other folks is this difference between your kid and you want to make something. There are many ways that you learn to express your creativity. Some kids like working with Play-Doh. You're given a big blob of clay and you mash it up into whatever you want. and you can make it into a shape, and it is it is a thing. You've mashed it into whatever form you want, whereas block editors are much more like Lego blocks, literally. Uh, it's more about small units that are assembled together to make the thing you want. Both of them are creativ- t- creativ- cre- creatively – holy crap. Good word. Good word. I am not even remotely into this makers yet, and I can't get words out of my mouth. <laughs> Uh, which is I I'm saying that as if I haven't said that twelve other times on this show, and I think it's maybe more about me. Uh, <laughs> but maybe I just have a problem. Uh, they're both creatively uh, totally acceptable. Like those are completely legitimate p- ways to create things. They're just different. Yeah, and then
1: with Plato, I, I I mean I really like your analogy, Michael. It's it's you also then get you know you had like the the spaghetti maker. <laughs> As a kid too with Play-Doh where you'd like smash it in and you'd mash it down and you get like all the little strings out and your parents would freak out because you just smashed it into the carpet. Um, but that that hand press that's pumping out the spaghetti, um, is I would say is kind of similar to like the templates area of like a, a CK editor or a tiny MCE, where you you want your users to have a little bit of layout capability or to save a little bit of time. And so maybe you just give them this little template. And all it's doing is yeah. injecting Play-Doh into the page, but it's at least giving it a little bit of shape.
0: Or even uh like with WordPress. Not I'll, I'll keep using WordPress as a reference point because I know folks are somewhat familiar. But like short, either short codes or you know, a plugin codes. that gives you like the video button. You know, where it's just gonna write the iframe into the page for YouTube or whatever. Like it's taking the ingredients and pushing them out. Yeah, in a predefined shape at that point. So.
1: True, but with the with the short code, I'd say that's a little bit more like a Lego because you can't really step into that short code and manipulate it. True,
0: yeah, that is that is a fair uh, fair point. And moving forward, it won't matter anyway because they won't let us have short codes soon. Uh, Seriously, is that a thing? That's well, yeah. I mean that that's one of the um, goals of Gutenberg is to. Replace shortcodes with blocks. So if you need, you know, that fancy testimonial block, you don't drop in a testimonial shortcode. You just literally drop in the testimonial block. Makes uh, sense. I, I just finished this at work, actually, and it's, uh, that's why that is a fresh uh, example. In, we were working on a, a new layout, and so I forced myself to say, you know what? There is a, temporarily, there is a shortcode block that you can use in mm. Gutenberg so that you can kind of bridge the gap as you're uh upgrading stuff. But I just instead of going that route, I just wrote a pure dynamic block that can sit in there and took that place. And I mean it was an experience. It was fun. And uh, I'm actually I'm working on an article right now about kind of what that means for the future of that uh I like block editing because block editing makes you think more about the things you're putting in, I think. It it gives you value to attach to individual elements when you're just throwing everything in a WYSIWYG, wig i feel like there's this uh urge to just hey i'm just gonna put a picture here and and align it right and keep going or i'm gonna throw whatever in and with blocks it forces you to really think spatially about things which forces you to attach certain value to it to make it come out the way that you want and and the nice thing
1: is you don't get into um I mean, I come from, from a Drupal context historically. And so Drupal would say, oh, you've got all that cruft that you're you're throwing in there. They actually have a whole bunch of people write about battle for the body field. Is this concept of like, you're trying to jockey that page. And so what they do instead is create hundreds of nested database Ooh. fields and then give you really crappy forms. But it's because they're trying to then have a data model and a structure. And if you just put the data in the correct way, we wouldn't have this... This data modeling issue so yeah i mean i i think it's a really good challenge to what started to pop up um and surrounding drupal and wordpress with things like Divi as well like these projects that sort of try to jockey the layout but we're a little heavy-handed and too database laden
0: yeah i've i've come over my multitude of years of of doing this i've come to a realization that you know this idea we we preach about concepts of separating content and layout and and code and all of this and i'm kind of of the mindset that there's no way to do that successfully purely they're they are intrinsically linked in different ways and you can sacrifice one for the other but i feel like in that triad you always kind of have to use two of them and that's something that that's that's part of this article i'm working on is this idea of Gutenberg inherently mixes layout with your content. Uh, that's the point of a block editor is being able to position things and align things and make columns. And it's not heavy layout, but it is this sort of soft layout that informs the content and it's designed to carry over if you know your, your template changes or whatever. But we are thinking about our content and the, how to tell a story with it spatially a lot more now. Uh, and I think that's a good thing I've I was I've had some conversations with folks that aren't happy about it they feel like they feel like that's exactly (laughs) what's happening is we're just mixing presentation and content and it's the end of the world and I don't think that's true
1: yeah and uh, I mean we got a similar mix of feedback um, when Nikki and I debuted hacks at DrupalCon last year it was one of the first questions was well what do I do with my structured content it's like I don't know. I mean, keep doing it, like do it when it makes sense. Like this is, you know, something to challenge your conventions. Maybe you had too much nested data that really wasn't needed. You know, I, I'll also be curious to see, as you mentioned, well, that that body area is then kind of agnostic of the theme. I'm wondering how, you know, as we get more and more into the life cycle, right. And It's going to take another year or two, how well that yeah. actually works. Um, And that's something I, i claim to push with some of my projects as well but it's it's a little bit like is the body area really that swappable you know or do people often lay out content relative to the other sidebar content blocks and oh well if i have all this advanced capability in the editor do i need as many sidebar content block detour type of situations
0: yeah yeah there's there's a lot to consider with with these block editors and i think uh you know, I think where we are with it now is very much where like when CK Editor came out 12 years ago or whenever it was, yes. I'm just, I just picked years out of my head at this point, um, a long time ago, you know, there was a lot of, of, you know, fussing about some of that, but WYSIWYGs became the standard. You had a WYSIWYG if you needed any kind of, well, of course we called it rich content at that point. But yeah, I, I, we're in like, we're literally in year one of, of true block editing now, there are others. Uh, if anybody's used Medium to write an article, you've used a block editor. Medium's block editor is very simple. It doesn't offer a lot of affordances for different block types, but it is, strictly speaking, a block editor. It gives you, you know, your paragraph blocks, list blocks, image blocks, video blocks. It lets you determine a little bit of layout. You know, do you want your images aligned? You want them wider than the rest of your content? You know, giving you the this ability to manipulate again the layout within reason um for your content. Notion, if anybody has used Notion, it's a uh kind of like an air tables sort of tool that lets you relate information to each other in a very free-form way. Uh on the element editor, the information editor, it pops up a screen and it uses blocks and they've got a huge list of all these different blocks that extend from your normal text type blocks to all kinds of API embeddable stuff, you know, embed a Google doc, embed a, a YouTube video, embed a, a Slack uh, deal. And it uses those as a means of actually measuring how much you're using their tools to try to upsell you to the the pro level, basically. And so they say like, I think it's a thousand blocks on the free deal. Once you've used huh. a, a, you know, quote unquote, used a thousand blocks then you've hit your limit. So if you use a thousand blocks on one item, you're out. But if you use one block on a thousand items, and it's a funny way of going about it, because it's kind of, they're using it, I I think anyway, kind of as a measurement of how much, you know, database real estate you're taking up at that yeah. point. And of course, Gutenberg, everybody knows at this point, or has heard of, you know, they weren't the first block editor. Uh, they won't be the last. Uh, they're a case of, uh, you know, they weren't first to market, but they're definitely the one that is going to be known because they're the ones who have really marketed you know, this idea of Gutenberg. And whether or not we use the term block editor to describe Gutenberg uh, casually, that's what it is. And so that's going to be what we come back to a lot. It's going to be our reference point because it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous as far as that goes. Um, and it works well. I mean, by and large, it has certain faults, but it has really gotten quite good aside from a few i've i've ran into a couple of bugs that annoy the hell out of me but uh <laughs> try inserting a block in between two other blocks or undoing a video block it's not a great experience uh but what can i i can't see uh let's see okay anyway so that's a, that's what block editors are i didn't i don't want to spend a lot of time on that cuz y- you probably get it um just think lego blocks that's the best way to go about it but the thing that makes up the lego blocks and this is where uh brian's project with hacks gets really neat because they are utilizing a web api called web components um custom elements i don't i don't know which one is necessarily the right one to put out in front of that but i'm going to say web components
1: uh web components yeah so uh web component is a meta specification which you know to add to the complexity of just saying web components you think right like react view angular uh material design library bootstrap like any component library with air quotes um but it's a meta specification of which custom elements is part of so the other um custom elements just means you can define your own tag in the dom so instead of having h1 h2 h3 i can make like a really hyphen cool hyphen podcast element, and all it would do is link to <laughs> drunken UX, obviously. Um, or um, the other other three parts of the spec are um, the browser supporting a template tag, which is a brand new tag that um, doesn't actually paint to the screen the contents of it, so it holds onto them and needs JavaScript to invoke and tell it to stamp. Um, then there's Shadow DOM, which allows you to create new, uh, new document roots in the document, something you used to do via like iframes to get like hacky scoping of CSS. Um, you now can kind of say, hey, this component is its own little compartment and I don't want styles to bleed in and I don't want DOM to bleed out. Um, and then the the last part is um, ES modules or a, a basically a way of teaching the browser consistently where the definitions are. And so... Um, Visualized in the document, you see that as uh, you can write script type equals module, which is a new form of JavaScript that tells JavaScript, uh, go get all the pieces. And then once you've got all the pieces, process them all. Um, so it's a lot more like it's not Node on the front end, but it starts to get into a lot of conventions like Node.js would have.
0: Yeah, yeah. That uh, two episodes ago, and if folks want to go back and listen to our CSS and JS episode, we talked a lot about like styled components and, and things like that. And the, the the methodology that's sort of taking place here in this, these these conversations about like scoped CSS um, and preventing bleed and things like that all kind of factor into this in different ways, you know, applied differently, certainly, but the you, you'll, you'll hear these concepts repeated, you know, time and time again in how we want to uh, solve them. This all, you know, this idea of, like the web component API and everything reminds me vaguely of uh, what we used to do back when you could define like um, RDF uh, sources in your HTML so that you could add in like additional attributes to elements and things. And it, it helped define like an extended schema for HTML. It, it vaguely kind of reminds me of that in a way. Yeah. And, and it definitely, with the way people are using web components,
1: you'd see that even more. Um, because you've got custom attributes and custom properties that people are stuffing on these tags. So then if we had the, you know, uh, greatest hyphen podcast element, I could then say, Oh, title equals drunken UX URL equals, you know, drunken com, and uh, you know, current rate current hyphen rating equals, and then pass in whatever. And it would show, you know, number of stars or whatever. So,
0: So yeah, there are a lot of parallels there. Um, we were talking earlier, and you had brought up like that idea of XSLT and, and those style sheets. And I thought that was kind of an interesting corollary, because there is this idea behind writing code that outputs something else, so to speak. Yeah, you're really dating us
1: with this uh, podcast to even know what the hell XSLT is. But There, um...
0: there are still CMSs <laughs> that use it in the Java
1: space, so... I feel like there should be like a slide reel or like a film projector at the back of a classroom, like a voiceover type announcer,
0: like back in the day, XSLT was the rage. I love the hell out of, out of like talking to classes and stuff about that and and getting the opportunity <laughs> to kind of say, you know, back, we used to have a, and this is totally unrelated to anything. We had a, a Google mini search appliance and I, I love okay. the hell out of that thing. It was <laughs> super cheap. It gave good search results for, you know, a reasonable, reasonable size data set. And you could either link people into it or pull results out and use XSLT to, uh, redesign those results. And so I had a lot of fun back then with that, those good memories. Uh, it's, it's really though. This what this comes down to. This is all about. I say, uh, I I use the phrase peeling back the cloak of HTML. Everybody gets H- HTML. We learn to write it. We learn the elements. There aren't that many of them, really. Um, so it becomes very quick and easy to understand them and know what they do. This it, that that HTML is what your foundation is. It's what everything is roughly built on. And if you don't have what you need, then you have divs and spans, and you hope for the best. But with web components, it kind of gives you that ability to, you know, get underneath all of that and say, I can do better on these things and design your own solution at that point.
1: Yeah, so the, the custom element piece of the spec, uh, if you were to look at the peel back and look at what the JavaScript is, um, you're actually writing a class that extends HTML element. So it's like what makes up the guts of that paragraph tag to the DOM. It's as if they gave us, you know, W3C gave us this new way to just define the new paragraph tag and said, well, if you put a hyphen in it, then you're good. And if everything's lowercase and it doesn't have numbers, um, then you can make your own elements. So I, I think it's a game changer. It's been very misunderstood, especially because um, when you're talking standards, um, the web Components standard was first proposed in a... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name. of It, it, it was in, a, I believe, a Google or a front-end development conference talk in 2011. And so if you're talking going at a standard, like imagine you're writing a web page in the 80s and then this incredible thing called cascading style sheets shows up on the scene and you tell your boss, we need to stop using XSLT, Michael. <laughs> or, you, or you, well, you're saying to your boss because you loved XSLT. You're like, "We, I really think, I think this CSS could go somewhere. Your boss is never going to be like, shut the hell up and write another XML document for for like 10 years until the industry has caught up, right? Um, you've definitely had this big chicken and egg scenario surrounding the specification in that way, which is why there's so much FUD out there surrounding it, because it, it did used to suck.
0: But it really, <laughs> you know, this idea of, hey, just make your own tags for what you need does land a, an extremely Wild West feel to everything. Um, and the idea that, yeah, you can make your own thing and you can also make it pretty badly if you don't know what you're doing. So there's oh, you know, yeah. there's a lot of value. And I want to talk when we get further down about uh, your video uh, player tag because I there's some cool stuff there for folks that haven't seen it. If folks need sort of a reference point, the the technology that you you maybe have seen uh, that utilizes this quite heavily is a Google AMP. They're accelerated mobile pages. And if you go look at an an AMP page or the AMP spec and you're looking at how to make one of those pages, you'll notice that it's made up of all of these other tags that you've not seen before. If you want to put an image in, you don't use image tag. You use an AMP image. They've got a whole list of these. I'll throw a link in the show notes to, to all the components they use. But what they've done is utilized all these custom elements to make their own minified sort of html spec that they bootstrap with a little bit of javascript to then present things in a way that they want for speed and for mobile and all of that and they've you know done their own work on it and it does what brian said you can always tell because the names have a hyphen in them
1: yeah so that's part of part of the specification like i couldn't just go and make a uh, um my screen name is BTO Pro. So I couldn't just make a BTO Pro tag. That wouldn't work. Yeah, It would have to be like BTO hyphen PRO. Um, if you want some some less trippy examples in AMP, if you go to YouTube, YouTube.com is built in web components. Has been for uh, like two years now. Um, Google Earth is also built in web components. And if you really want to get trippy, um, if you open Google Chrome, go to an About tab, right click and say Inspect. Google Chrome's Chrome is built out of web components.
0: Ah, I didn't know. Uh, now I'm <laughs> going to have to do it and, and go take a look. So I'm, now I'm curious, but yeah. And if you stop and think about it, think about all the other HTML tags you're used to using. Everything that is in the official HTML5 spec, they're all single word. There are no hyphens. There are no you know no numbers, no nothing. They're just the single thing, and that's that's the differentiator you know, semantically that they came up with. It's kind of a, you know, it's a clever approach actually to, you know, real simply um, do it. Cause then it's also easy to do like find and replaces or, you know, regex matches on tags, things like that. uh, Because
1: Yeah, it's it's incredible just from a sustainability approach. Um, But I think it's also important to to point out that um, you are creating new tags that operate just like old tags. And so inevitably what's in a new tag is old tags. So if I make like a, you know, brand hyphen new hyphen home hyphen link, it's going to be made up of an A tag, it's going to be made up of a div and paragraphs and, and all the things that you're used to seeing, it's kind of like you're just giving a namespace that helps encapsulate it a little bit more.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question is why, like, what is the advantage to me as a developer to say, I'm going to go through all this effort to make a web component, uh, or a custom element, and do that rather than just Nesting a bunch of divs and throwing some span tags in there and a couple buttons and calling it good. Like it it's about that abstraction and reusability, right?
1: Yeah. So um I mean there's a a ton of reasons. And this is at some level, like there's a ton of reasons to do component-based architecture. Right? And web components just happens to be the spec, right, and yeah. I think will will be the most performant overall because it's so close to the browser layer. Um but so one is sustainability. So uh, I guarantee everyone that's ever made a website has something that looks kind of like what you would call in a design meeting a card, right? And a card has maybe an image on it, and it has a header, and then it has like a click for more info or something. Um, so you would then make in a template, whether that's a Twig or just you know straight template language of any CMS, or or just write it in the web page, a uh, whole ton of divs, like you said, and you'd wire up those whole ton of divs. Okay, um, well project that we work on this primarily through, is called Elm's Learning Network. It's um, an ecosystem of systems. And so I don't just have a card. I've got uh, nine different solutions at nine different domains that have a thing that you would identify as a card. But if I do that as just divs, I've got nine different templates at nine different places that are mashed together div gobbledygook. Replay that and do it as a web component. I make a component that's called you know, Brian's hyphen card or whatever. And Brian hyphen card can accept a title, it can accept an image and it can accept, uh, you know, more info link. Now in my templates, I just wire up to that that definition. And so now when I want to update the card or fix an accessibility issue, this is huge for accessibility. Um, If I want to fix an accessibility issue, I fix it in the definition of the card and no longer all the places I use that div gobbledygook
0: yeah it's, it it lends itself very well and i, I don't want to use the the word atomic because i think it's a little bit bigger than that but like at the molecule level it really starts to take shape i think to understand if you're using stuff over and over why that makes sense as a as a utility
1: yeah it's it's definitely an approach that like day one you go oh that was neat um but then you know when you really buy into just the workflows and, and repurposing your code and thinking about, think about taking those atoms and you use them across, uh, you know, solutions, um, web components could plug into view or, or angular or a lot of, you know, plug it into jQuery if you really wanted to. Um, so if you have a connotation of a card for vendor a, you could literally repurpose all of the code for, for vendor or client B um, from the same source. So if you have an accessibility issue, um, you mentioned our video player. Our video player is made up of hundreds of tags. And so, you know, uh, right down to the stinking button that says play. So if there's an accessibility issue in that button that says play, we fix the abstraction of that button because that accessibility issue is now in, you know, all 50 of the buttons that make up that interface. So instead of fixing it 50 times, we fix it in one place, propagates. Maybe we use the video player in another tag. Maybe we use... That button in another t- place, um, we start to be able to get this exponential um, gain on on. It's it's like we're we're hitting a rock and we're starting to get diamonds off of it just from the extreme force of the pressure hitting it. When at first we just got coal, but it's like the the hammer keeps getting more and more powerful every time that we swing with it. Um, and it, not like in a you know Drupal or WordPress way where you used to be like, oh, this is the thing I'll use to solve every problem. No, like this. You're literally like sharpening your skill sets and you have this bigger and bigger Lego box to build with. Right.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, because, you know, it it sounds great when you put an advocate in front of something that everything will sound great. But folks are going to sit there and say, but I haven't heard of that before. I haven't heard of web. Why have I not heard of web components? I haven't heard of Shadow DOM. And the first question is going to be, is it because it doesn't work in everything? uh because that's always one of the challenges to trying to adopt the new thing or the fancy thing is there's you know any number of compatibility problems there's always the the microsoft issue even though edge is better we know but it's <laughs> it's still not completely there uh so is this the kind of thing like can people use it safely for everything is it do they need polyfills for it what's how does that look right now
1: yeah so um there's definitely you know, it's in part been a compatibility issue, part a chicken and egg scenario and uh, part just general confusion, right? Because do you remember the days way back? It's really not that long ago. I believe it was uh, 2005 when we didn't have a video tag, Michael. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, um, do you know what caused the video tag to exist? Oh, uh, you brought a quiz to the show and I like what were the series of events that went, yes, we need a video tag.
0: 2005 would have been about the time that the the real video java applets were going out 2006 is when youtube uh was founded and that was all in flash at that point Flash, Uh, and so yeah we wanted to kind of work our way out of applets out of flash embeds out of swf object embeds
1: so so when the you know when the spec was made with paragraph tags and things why couldn't we have seen the video tag was needed It was because we needed the industry to propel these solutions. You needed Adobe to have Flash and people to be able to adopt it and express themselves in a non-standard based way, for sure. But you needed that to happen to cause the problem to then have uh, Opera, uh, the, the browser Opera, people from that platform say, we've got like 10 different ways to do video, gang. This is stupid. Like, what if we just had a video tag? Okay, well, it took four years to get that ratified, just the video tag. So as part of that, spun off this other group that was kind of like, are we going to do this for everything? Like, what if we need the next cool thing tag? So in part, it's just, it's, this stuff takes a long time to reach a point of maturity for workflows to emerge when you're talking, you know, um, standards bodies, like imagine the world prior to CSS, how long did it take for CSS to exist, or JavaScript to standardize into a usable form? So um, in that regard, it's just kind of an age, an age issue. It also suffered initially from uh, Google really jumped on this approach early because they have so many properties and so many development teams. And this was seen as a way of getting maximum efficiency um, out of just doing web development, right? Like how many friggin' buttons do they really need? They just need a button. And so they made material design spec, but then you still need to implement the damn button. (laughs) So, so they make, um, they really have been pushing hard on Web Component Spec, and they made this thing called Polymer, which is a library um, that it I believe used to market itself as the incredible disappearing uh, library, um, and it was because it was supposed to fade away, like it was supposed to be training wheels to bridge uh, and bring in the polyfills to allow people to use this to get enough adoption of that idea to get the spec to stabilize to then pull away the polyfills, and so even up until um, about two years ago, I would say it wasn't the time to, uh, or even a year ago, really, wasn't the time to adopt this. You know, was it really ready? No, um, we were using it, uh, but we were using what was uh, known as the V0 spec of the web component specification. It was something that uh, only Google and Opera fully implemented. And it was mostly to get people using this idea to convince the others to, okay, let okay, let's work on and refine and get the real spec, the V1 spec out there. Which is what you now see out in the wild. So I, I mean, I get this question a lot. So I did a lot of uh, actual, like, digging into BrowserStack.com research um, around some IE Edge questions that we we were answering recently for someone. Um, and so when I went through in February 2019, um, I was able to confirm that I, I put a my test was I put a single web component on a um, a Git Pages page, and then I just tried to load it in things. Um, and so I compared me loading it in um, uh, next to uh, numbers that I got off of. Can't recall the the name of the resource right now, but it was a it was something that just you go to and it says X percent of web traffic is using this. It's like es dot
0: uh, something I was gonna say uh, Can I Use is a good resource for that too.
1: Yeah, can, well, can, so Can I Use is great for you know Can I Use this JavaScript function or CSS thing. This is more like. Okay, I know it says that, but like I want to actually be able to confirm that I can go to this page and get a custom element to render. You know, Did I apply the polyfills correctly is right. a big deal. There are polyfills. Um, so I was able to confirm um, via BrowserStack.com and just devices that I physically had um, that it should work, the delivery of that component, in 98.26% of all global browsing traffic. Now, that's generalized right that you might have very specific needs you might have ie 5 or something all over the place on windows nt and that doesn't help you but um uh things that should work that i couldn't confirm uh should have hidden like 99.64 traffic um now that's also doing this and not even thinking about like a progressive enhancement strategy so you know you could do uh, server-side rendering of components, it's something people do with with React and other uh, other libraries as well. If you really need to get back in time, um, but we're starting to reach a tipping point where you know, IE 11 is going to basically die in January of 2020 because Windows 7 is end of life, and when Windows 7 goes end of life, Edge is you know the highest available thing. You know that's the only platform where Edge isn't available. So it's not to say it's going to go away overnight, but I'd really love to start challenging people as to do you really need to support IE eleven and Edge with an identical experience, or should you serve them an experience? Absolutely, right. I mean, you want to serve traffic and experience, but should you maybe be serving them a different experience or use a progressive enhancement strategy that they, you know, also puts at the top like in big text? You should probably use something modern. <laughs>
0: Um, I'm going to throw a link in our show notes too to a a site that's called custom-elements-everywhere.com, and what they've done is gone through and done uh, tests on like all of, I say all of, many of the popular front-end frameworks like Angular, React, uh, Dio. uh, These folks and tested them for their support of any number. Like I don't even, I I couldn't even tell you all of the tests that they are running, but it's a lot of them. Uh, to see how compliant they are with the custom element specs. Um, and you can get scores on them. So if that is something, if you are a front-end developer um, that's doing application development uh, in, in React or whatever, or Preact or any of these things, um, you can see kind of how conformant your framework of choice is uh, if you want to start putting some of that out. So let's, let's talk, though. Let's completely switch gears because at the end of the day, this all is to get us to your project. The headless authoring experience. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's something that uh, everybody, I'm sure, is more than familiar with at this point. Because uh, why wouldn't they be? Uh, why wouldn't <laughs> they be? I tweet about it a couple times. Just a couple. I you... I followed a thread you were on earlier, and I I think you were up to about twelve. Uh, <laughs> I get really passionate about this shit. That's uh. Um. That's why we have you on here. <laughs> this, this is your time, and here's yeah. let's let's start then. Uh, let's start with passion, because what let's dig down to the roots of this thing and let me ask the big question, which is what is the inspiration behind saying I want to build my own block content authoring system? Do you trust Matt Mullingworth to always
1: have your best interests in mind? I, I mean, do you trust, maybe. do you trust another <laughs> person on earth to constantly have power over you? I mean, I don't want to, I, no, I, I was going to say, I don't want to get that deep, but like, I see, so I, I, I play deeply in the Drupal community. I've been in it for 13 years. Um, I have hundreds of modules contributed there, love that community over the years, but they are, they're missing the boat. They're, they're missing the boat big time when it comes to uh, static site generators, when it comes to, you know, these little tiny systems that aren't so little tiny anymore. When you start to have the repercussions of web components layered into them. Um, you know, I think WordPress saw, started to see the writing on the wall and say like, hey, we don't have nearly as many developers. I mean, huge, bigger community, I'll say absolutely bigger community than Drupal. But if you go to a WordPress event versus a Drupal event, WordPress has a lot more focus on those end users and the people making content, and content strategy, marketing. And Drupal has way more emphasis on like, look at this incredible Docker deployment routine that I wrote. Like, almost too technical and abstract for, for normal peoples.
0: I think that is an entirely fair assessment. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. It's just, I don't like, because I'm not in the
1: WordPress space, I don't want to come across as an a-hole that I'm like, Oh, you're not technical. Like they are technical. It's just different. Right. Um, But I think you can see a legitimate collapse of PHP in interest relative to JavaScript. And you see a lot of younger people going straight into JavaScript um, because it's the web and I use the web all the time. And look, I made changes in this file and I reloaded and it was just there versus the barriers associated with a server-side technology in you know, PHP where I got I to gotta have a web server. Maybe I have to have Docker or some level of virtualization. Maybe I have to run MAMP even. Um, I need to know what the hell a server is to bother running a thing on it. Versus, I learned HTML and JavaScript and CSS by opening up Notepad on my dad's 486 DX laptop, and then opening it in Netscape Navigator. I didn't have tooling; I had Notepad, and so um, I really think PHP is starting to reach kind of the apex from where a lot of people are going to go as far as being interested in things. Um, Drupal is an incredible platform at, at modeling content at um, organizing where users can go but like eventually that is stable and then you move on to incredibly immersive experiences and that shit ain't going to happen on the back end like you're going to get that on the front end which is always getting better uh the tooling's getting easier to adopt and so i see uh things like gutenberg um and i i mean i'm mentioned i'm from penn state i am from a university context we really value open and transparent information transmission um there's also a lot of efforts around um, something called open educational resources, which is just this idea. Um, it's not something MIT started, but MIT has one of the bigger uh, groups doing work in this for a while, uh, where they just said, like, look, if you want to access M- resources from MIT, there's this website. You go to it. I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're a student. You, you know, we want to educate the world. And so um, there's a lot of movement towards completely open platforms and completely open material. And yes, you're going to. University to pay for an experience, but like the material, if you want to learn about some cool chemistry stuff, then just go ahead and do that on your own. Like, why do you have to pay to get access to that? That's not what you're actually here for. I see that space heavily aligning with WordPress um, historically. And I see Gutenberg as a direct existential threat to the open web because it is requiring you to understand so damn much to effectively just lay out a little tiny piece of the web there. And most of their users are not technical by, you know, the definition I went with. I'm not trying to be a jerk. Um, and so migrate that content to something that's not WordPress. And the answer would answer would just be like, oh, but you trust the people that made WordPress. They'll never steer you in a direction that everyone disagrees with. <laughs> They'll never do something decisive like make an editor that uh, bricks all of your shortcodes because you're going to be able to convince a faculty member what that a short code even is right
0: it's an interesting argument and and I like the you know the way you started with this idea of do you trust Matt uh, you know do you trust him to control your your authoring experience and that has been one of the big criticisms is that Gutenberg has been his baby and for better or worse and in many of the discussions occasionally worse uh, through any number of channels and this idea that uh, it It is very much his vision. Now, I'm not going to say whether that's good or bad because honestly, uh, I use it. I, you know, I I get my money's worth out of it. But it is a a completely valid position to think it's think about Google and what Google has done for any number of industries. And we used to have that, you know, the mantra "Do no evil," and people trusted Google. Sure, used to didn't we? Then they they get big (laughs) enough that yeah, they're still going to probably be the engine that drives things for a long time but now you've always got that little voice in the back of your head saying yeah but uh you know could you have it better over here could it could it be different um or you know how much one one thing that power and this is going to get super existential for a minute but one of the things that pow- comes with please this, do one of the things that comes with this power is this ability to direct people's behavior without them knowing it essentially. Yes. And that's, I think, where some of that comes in. It's like Gutenberg, and let's let's take the, the elephant in the room. One of the big arguments against Gutenberg all the way up till December was the concern over all the accessibility issues. And it literally got bad enough that they said, we're going regardless. And it, it's one yes. of those sort of uh, not direct like they didn't just say we don't care about accessibility because they do. I you know I'm not and there are some fantastic people that have help, tried to help them and and tried to you know push that uh, agenda forward. But at the end of the day, it clearly became about you know uh what's what's the phrase? Uh, it was the, the message was clear, so to speak. And that's something that I think is worth being concerned over if you're a developer. Um and so it's good to see cuz I can't go get mediums block developer. That's entirely proprietary. If I want to go install a block developer on my site right now, that isn't Gutenberg because Gutenberg is, it's designed to be portable. They have built it with the idea that you could pick up just the Gutenberg editor and put it in Drupal there. I mean, I I'm pretty sure folks have done that at this point. They have it running inside Drupal uh, blocks. Blocks are not WordPress dependent. They are you know, written with that in mind. Certainly but the code itself is not actually warehoused in such a fashion that it is restricted to that ecosystem, even if people don't realize that. Um, but maybe that's not what you want. You, you may not want Gutenberg. You may not want the licensing that is associated with it, or whatever that case may be. Um, I don't know. Is what is Hacks? Is it MIT licensed?
1: Hacks is Apache two. Apache two, which means and again get rather existential you take that and do whatever the hell you want with it yeah it's it's almost mit and and yeah i mean and you get to uh you know we mentioned hacks okay it's a it's a it's an editor but it's it's a tag like from an integration standpoint it's a tag on the browser that understands how to manipulate what's inside of it in pursuit of that tag we have created 168 projects that work independent of the editor so you can use them on any website you can extend the web and enhance the visual aesthetic of the web and work on the individual pieces. You mentioned the video player. Um, we've got all kind of shit in there. Um, versus am I going to take my time to work on an editor and things for an editor that will only work in places that that editor is produced. So as a, a unique differential, um, you can edit things in Hacks in a site that uses Hacks. I can take the contents of that and literally copy and paste the web components over. And I do this in a, in demos usually. I'll start at a static website. I'll author stuff there. I'll hit export, copy the material over to Drupal six, which is ancient, but as long as it's a thing that can store data and then present data, and as long as I can get the definition of the tags in there, it'll work. So we have Drupal six, Drupal seven, Drupal eight, Backdrop, Grab CMS, um, a desktop app that we've showed in the past. That, we still need to do some work on Um, but we also can be portable but the contents we make are also portable they don't require that editor to be there anymore which is the really important decentralized web aspect to me like when you hit save um, with the gutenberg editor and you like if you go and inspect the dom after you've hit save and and you're viewing your content that's out there you see just a whole ton of like html comment gobbledygook that refers to like WP colon block colon and it's teaching it so that then the front end can unpack it and you get the right, you know, style. But now I've had to teach whatever this new system is, how to interpret Gutenberg blocks in that regard, right? Like I I just don't think that that is going to be long-term sustainable, not to mention uh, the fact that it's built on react, which was hot in uh, 2014, 2015, is still, you know, industry standard and is the biggest, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember jQuery was the biggest. So a lot of, a lot of my philosophy surrounding the platform's design is around content permanence, um, portability, making sure the editor's open, making sure the contents the editor produces are open, making sure anyone can extend it. Um, and I do mean anyone. Um, like you shouldn't have to understand all the intricacies of react and WordPress just to contribute something that ends up being a little tiny block on the web page. You shouldn't even need an effing CMS to do that. But yet we've kind of roped ourselves into this world where, yeah, we kind of have to. And I say that as someone that backed himself into this corner, I was gung ho. Everything is Drupal, always Drupal. And it is great until you start to realize the real raw power of what's coming with JavaScript. Um, when you when you go to codepen and you put a reference to the hacks tag in codepen and then you have an authoring experience in codepen <laughs> then you start to go oh what the f is going on here
0: <laughs> so to that end because that's actually kind of a a jumping off point slash uh sidebar w- what about like security concerns let's say on something like that Uh, is, is the browser smart enough from like, if you went and put your editor into a code pin and it understands how to then render out your stuff, is it possible to, you know, produce something that would be dangerous? An XSS attack. Whether, yeah, an XSS attack or reflected attack, something like that, that uh, because it is abstracted through the web component that the browser might not catch.
1: Um, yeah, that's a good that that is a good question.
0: Um so in I don't I don't know that's a, it's a question of the shadow dom, right? This is where yeah, shadow dom. Yeah, yeah. So comes into play. Um, in
1: part that's in part why we use polymer to create so you can use uh skate js, lit Element, um polymer, preact, vue js and you can technically even down to a data layer mix all those pieces together now as a result of this. Um polymer does um attribute and property binding. And so when I'm writing code, and I want to transition data from one element to another, which is a huge, you know, really powerful concept in it. Let's say I want to visualize uh, stuff from YouTube, Uh, I would go and get a iron Ajax tag, which is a an element that you plug in, hey, go get this JSON. And then I know it'll be available at this variable. I can do curly braces, which is a two-way data bind to a variable, and then I can wire that up to something else and make it present that information. Polymer doesn't allow you to write or pass unsanitized HTML through its property bindings. Oh, and so okay. that's a big part of, of why we adopted it. We also, at the moment, although it's generally like a, I don't know why the hell you wouldn't, um, we're building on top of a lot of Google's core element set that they have just because they are really strong elements, um, to do things like go broker that call with a remote source, run this callback function when it comes back, and then take the results and do whatever you want with them. Um, To be able to just write that in the DOM as an iron hyphen Ajax tag, and not have to write all the JavaScript that kind of abstracts that away, that's a game changer enough from a productivity standpoint. Um, but then you're also, you've had the security vetting of these things over the years to know that like a lot of this shit goes into like YouTube. So you're writing on a lot of the same components. Other people are, um, to get it into that code pen though, you are having a trust factor with, you know, we operate a few CDNs. If you're delivering stuff from our CDN, you're trusting that the JavaScript we're giving you is legit. Right. So, you know, I wouldn't just go free reign, putting stuff in from, uh you no, know, like, you know, do you run Unpackage in production, right, or UnPKG, on, on which allows you to unpack node modules, but you could pass a uh, question mark module flag to it, and it'll give you it in a web, uh, a web form now. So, like, you can actually plug NPM packages in via Unpackage uh, in a way that would render in the browser. <laughs> do you trust that? <laughs> I mean, so... No, like I wouldn't trust that, but like from a testing and development and getting to the point to go, okay, well, what is the sustainable method? I mean, it's incredible for just playing around with that stuff.
0: Let's, uh, let you, you mentioned uh, NPM. Is this available in NPM? Yeah, so
1: Hacks and uh, all the elements we produce. So Elms Learning Network is, is kind of the organization that we operate under. And then our elements set are actually published under something called LRN Web Components. And it's a mono repo that just helps us manage all of them because you mentioned Nikki. Nikki works on them. We have two other developers that work with us. And so we needed one giant repo to be able to to work on this collectively. Um, But then when we get to a point where it's like, okay, we made a ton of progress on this. I run, learn a publish, and it ships all of them up to NPM. Um, If you go to webcomponents.org, which I'm sure you'll have in the show notes, um, it's, it's, at a little bit advocacy site, but it's mostly just a um, kind of a repo that's, or a repo, I don't even know what to do, like a repo index almost. Like people come and say like, hey, I've got an element, I want to list it here. So that then you can go to webcomponents.org and you can search and find, you know, if you search ELMS LN, you're going to find our 168 or whatever it is, elements. Um, so those can be mixed into any project. Yeah. Now, some of them might depend on other elements. And you get those via the package.json. But
0: yeah, I think of it a lot like if you've searched for, you know, you know, Docker images or whatever. It's just this kind of yeah. is there, you know, yeah. WordPress plugins, whatever themes. It's just a yes. giant yes. repository of all the things. And it's neat to think about this idea of how have other people solved these reusable content needs that I have, and could I just grab this and, and take it? Let's go uh, I wanna hit on one Particular point of execution, just because I'm curious about it. When we talk about Gutenberg and the way that it mm-hmm. outputs HTML, and you mentioned it basically is storing block data in the HTML tags that, is, that are sort of the database. It pulls that out, and uh, React is then able to read those attributes out of the HTML tags to know what the settings were at store time. When it renders out, that is still rendered out as quote unquote the, con- the content. So when you are doing WordPress theme development, you don't have to do anything new. You just keep using the content. It comes out. There are some exceptions. Dynamic blocks are are an exception to that. It leaves the comment in. And at server render time, it uses that to go get your dynamic block and render it into the page in real time. I say all this because to build a universal, platform-agnostic content editing tool, and, and you've already mentioned Going in and copying your uh, markup and everything into Drupal 6 and these other platforms to show that it can be done uh, what does hacks ultimately output that's this is my long way of getting to that question of is the thing hacks outputs a fully compartmentalized chunk of code that I could put on any page does it include the JavaScript necessary to you know render the web components unlike say Gutenberg which you know, most folks are going to use blocks, but they're not going to do web components. They're just going to use a block that outputs a bunch of divs. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um,
1: It is effectively orchestrating the DOM inside of it. So if you wanted to just write H2 tags and bulleted lists and paragraphs with hacks, you could do that. And then when you hit save, all you're getting back are H2s and divs and, and, and whatever was in there. Um, so it's just kind of orchestrate, it's trying to basically just, uh, leverage the web front end as an API. And so that's really easy to do with web components. So like a common one that's throughout all our documentation, cause I have to have the funniest documentation on the web is, uh, the meme hyphen maker tag.
0: Is it, you do have a lot of animated gifs in uh, your, uh, and the meme
1: and, and it's because they're trivial because of the way we're treating the front end. So, um, when I want to get a new, uh, a new animated GIF, right, um, Uh, I go and I click the, um, I click edit and then I hit the find tab and the find tab brings up uh, input sources. So I can search YouTube inside of Hacks, inside of Hacks actually on Hacks CMS. Um, So I could search YouTube or I could search Jiffy is what I end up doing usually. And I type in like funny dog or whatever. And then whatever the result is, I hit, yeah, I want that one. Hacks bubbles up a message saying, oh, I have an image and uh, it's got a source and a title. Does anyone know how to interpret that? And the elements, the visual assets, not an interpreted, not like a bunch of PHP code that got injected at runtime. The elements themselves are in a registry and hacks at runtime saying, oh, there's the MemeMaker tag. And the MemeMaker tag knows how to handle an image and it can handle an input source. So that when I select that, it stitches those two together. It basically just takes the MemeMaker tag and wires to the properties. And then presents it as a preview. So that then, when you hit insert, you're literally just putting that into the DOM. So then, when I hit save, I'm literally just saving, you know, what looks like bracket meme hyphen maker title equals funny dog image, you know, or URL equals whatever came across. Um, so now you do need the definition of meme maker in whatever that that moves to, right? Um, but it is saving. The minimum amount that it actually needs, so you're not getting into the shadow shadow DOM in there. You're not getting a bunch of, uh, you know, commented out React stuff. So I mean, it's yes, you could say, oh well, you still have to give it a definition. And you're right, but you don't need like hacks had nothing to do with that. And I'm sure you could say, well, Gutenberg doesn't have anything to do with that, right? Because Gutenberg makes the blocks. The blocks are their own layer, and the theme delivers, right. and then the blocks render um but then are you going to go around and create gutenberg integrations for everywhere you could possibly want to migrate that content which in a traditional web development sense you would be like yeah you know, whatever and then i would say okay well if you trust wordpress.com to constantly host your website or whatever vendor x that happens to be wordpress or or drupal or whatever you move to then you'll be fine but i don't trust anyone or anything in that way. <laughs> so, you know, I can roll out new integrations in like minutes or hours. Uh, I could build content in hacks and then I could put it in a code pen like minutes later by just adding in the definition to get the get the components. Not hacks, to, but just to get the outputs components. Right. So I'd say it's... That's the big, the major difference.
0: The thing that I would encourage folks, like if this sounds interesting to you, if the concept of of component sounds interesting to you, but you are a WordPress person, you're somebody who is in that community, and understandably so. I mean, that's where most people cut their teeth at some point. If you really want to differentiate yourself, nothing that Brian has described is unique to an ecosystem, and I might even put forth the argument that the right way to learn how to write a good block in Gutenberg would be to maybe have it output a web component, a custom element at that point, because then you are guaranteeing that same thing that if you switch CMSs entirely and you use a tool, if you use HTTrack or whatever to do like raw HTML scrapes of the site, as long as you keep that definition included, that stuff still works, even without any extra React javascript anything on that side none of the php none of it matters anymore and that really cuz building out the my testimonial panel you know it comes down to my my in this case a dynamic block so i've got all this markup it's all html it's divs it's all this nested stuff but i could also have it just be like you know testimonial give it a title maybe a a background definition gradient x or something across it and then it's got a number of children elements uh, similar to how you would have like a block quote in the site or something testimonial and quote. Mm-hmm. And each one of those is one of those panels. I could export that and pick it up and take it anywhere with me. Uh, now the raw markup is still perfectly good too, um, but you're able to abstract that information out. And I think that's sort of that ultimate goal there. Uh, let's, before we get to uh too far down the rabbit hole, even though that's exactly where we're meant to go this evening. Uh, Let's (laughs) go specifically, because I know how important accessibility was, especially as part of a university. That's pretty integral to the things that you create. Um, How do we talk about accessibility in context of custom elements? So um,
1: there's a really good talk by uh, Rob Dodson, who was uh, formerly the Polymer developer advocate so like the person you'd see on stage or anytime you'd see a talk about polymer it was probably him um and it was around the accessibility of a a single link and a button on a page and it's like a half hour talk i think And, and i don't remember if he says it but i definitely inject with that do you want to know how to do that do you care about accessibility is different than should you have to care about accessibility like why doesn't the web why isn't the web just presented in an accessible form well it was built on this concept of the way that you assemble things and then you have to implement the spec correctly but like i screw up everybody screws up right there's there's nobody i know out there that's just like f accessibility right so when you see university audiences especially they get dinged on accessibility yeah it's probably people making mistakes honest mistakes right cuz this stuff is not easy <laughs> and so if we had a technology that could abstract away that complexity after we've gotten it right, then we solve the problem. Like I have a, um, I have a, t- a tag called um, uh, LRN table. You feed it a CSV file, and it generates a guaranteed accessible HTML table. How many people have been trained on how to correctly use th and when to use trs and and td's? But make sure you don't nest them <laughs> like this, and don't bold the text here, but bold it over here, and and put a summary in, but not a caption in summary, because if they're the same, like that's really good. That's poor usability for the screen reader, and I don't disagree. Like that stuff is really important, but. You're going to do that training. Someone's going to go to it. And of the hundred people that are there, someone's going to screw it up. Yeah. Like it's oh, just yeah. going to happen. So it's like, to me, custom elements is this beautiful way of encapsulating that knowledge, particularly on the accessibility side um, that I really see it. Like if we have a custom element and we have a couple of them that, um, that were were uh, self-aware of the colors being used to present themselves. So what I mean is... Um, uh, Nikki has made us an incredibly verbose color library so that then when we implement those colors, we say, oh, the background is, and we'll use a CSS variable, we'll say the background is like dash dash simple hyphen color, you know, light blue six or whatever. That she has this map that can then go, oh, light blue six. Well, you use that as a background. The only way to accessibly present text on that is if the font size is X and if it's black. That's logic that we can abstract away from the user so that the user creating the blocks in our block editor is just putting in, oh, oh, color selector, I want blue. But really what they did is they told us they want blue six, and we now know to change the dynamically change the color of the text relative to that. So I think it's those kind of like we can bake accessibility directly into our elements. You know, you could write area and and all of that still responds, right? I could write that in those um primitive tags that are stuffed inside of a custom element. Yeah, in the same way. And it's also then the, um, the sustainability plays right into it. Let's say I ship something and I did, you know, oh, we're not, we're not on uh, uh, section 508 anymore. We're on WCAG 2.0. Oh, uh, shit. Now we're on WCAG 2.0 AA. Oh, now we're on WCAG 3.0 AAA. I audit the custom element. I don't audit my entire portfolio in the same regard. Because if I make that element that does the table WCAG 3.0 AAA, now everywhere that's used that table is, and It's not to say it's 100%, right? But you're going to get a hell of a lot higher degree of accessibility just out of the box as a result of that. So I, that's where I see it really being um, a game changer. Um, we've had a lot of our elements audited in a like, hey, look out for these different things. Um, by by our disability offices and things and it's something we go through and it's like we we now have this tool that it's not just fixing accessibility it's like fixing it in a sustainable manner that can scale Um, because trainings even have just been a huge stopgap where you have to train everybody that touches the web i mean that's that's everybody (laughs) yeah exactly
0: and all those everybody's that touch the web they don't have web brains so to speak they don't understand that level of complexity which is not a knock on them i'm not calling anybody stupid no, or dumb no, or anything. No. it's just not their expertise no. and nor do they have any reason to understand like color contrast color contrast is such a mathematical issue to, <laughs> yeah. to get to um that you can't ask the secretary in the biology department to know to check that stuff it's and for listeners the one thing i'm going to throw out there when it comes to anything accessibility related we've We've talked about it on past episodes, but we've never dug into uh, this idea of trust. And when it comes to anything accessibility related, there is nobody that you can trust better as a resource for providing things. And I know this is the kind of thing I'm going to say, and and the minute I say it, a bunch of folks are going to wave their finger at me. But (laughs) universities are bound to Section 508. Most of them have a state-level policy that dictates some level of 508 acceptance, and virtually all of them have uh, either, you know, accessibility offices, uh, affordance offices, whatever they happen to call it at that point. But they are working possibly harder at this than anybody. Uh, Yes. Go to your local (laughs) business downtown that's owned by, you know, Jim and Diane. They hired somebody to set up a Wix site for them. They don't know anything about accessibility. That's one reason why I think this is really cool because it's here it is a university putting something out open licensed, fully available to anybody that is putting this stuff out there and and thinking about it where you're you really can't put out something that hasn't at least started to tackle those problems. Um and that's a Valuable resource to the community that I think people overlook. WordPress, you know, as their example, they know they had accessibility problems with Gutenberg. They went ahead anyway because they could. They could, yeah. At the end of the day. And their answer to everybody that criticized them was use the classic editor plugin. And there are a lot of arguments, a lot of philosophical standpoints on why that is not the right answer. And regardless of which side you stand on, that's still the bottom line point is that they don't have to adhere to that level of success that folks like Brian do. And I think we all make ourselves better by holding ourselves to that standard. You know, if I'm a chef, I'm not going to go buy, you know, all of my fruits and vegetables from the guy with, you know, his trunk lid open in the alley. Uh, He also sells other things that aren't fruits and vegetables. Don't ask about those things because then you end up in the hospital. You don't remember what happened. You have a black eye. It's a long story. But all of that is to get us to the last question of Hacks CMS because that's a segue worth uh, doing. Uh, So uh, we've we've been talking a lot about the editor, the Hacks editor, Hacks editor, but you've actually built a sort of lightweight – cms to kind of wrap this thing if people want to test it right yeah so
1: um where we started with that was um uh so we built hacks as an editor um originally for our platform elms learning network which is built on drupal 7 and then it was like i mean this could run anywhere and so started making it run other places and it was like i mean then i start using it my personal work because it's open license i use it wherever i want and i'm like oh i put it on my Grav site and i'm like you know, if I have this advanced editor, why the hell am I still using Grav? Because, like, what I liked with Grav is it was giving me Markdown files, and Markdown files are very simple. And then the theme layer was still a barrier to me because I was like, I don't know how to theme stuff in Grav. Like, like I couldn't theme my own blog. I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? So, um, so I was like, I basically have created a um, a tr- attempting to be this best of breed solution of um, what if we had an ultra powerful editor that had an, an incredible user experience and then the same way that you constructed um, your blocks, right, that your block system, literally every aspect of the workflow was identical to the way I did design and theming. And so that's what we have with with HackCMS. So HackCMS is a microsite um, static generator manager. So like Jekyll, you're going to dig in and you're going to run a bunch of command line to pump that out and it's going to publish somewhere. Hack CMS is entirely through, the, through a, a GUI. You can install Hack CMS in MAMP as of today when we started <laughs> recording. I got it work. I proved I could do it Publish from MAMP. Um, but you could put Hack CMS into MAMP Fired up and it would say, Oh, hey, you logged in. And what you'd see is just a whole bunch of cards and say, add a new site. And what you're adding when you add new sites is it's physically creating files on the file system and then structuring those to be a um, high Lighthouse scoring PWA that's completely offline capable because you know how to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I didn't know how the
0: hell to do that. It's like, man, two commands.
1: Easy. Yeah. So, um, so. What you end up getting is you end up getting um, a theme that has Hacks editor injected into it. And then you can just hit edit and just reach out and edit the content. Um, It then has an outline button. You hit the outline button, which is your site outline. And so as you type and you just create what in the DOM is ULs and LIs, and you hit save, it analyzes that, ships to the back end, and then writes to a single um, JSON file. So every site is powered by a site.json. And then every new page that's created, it actually physically creates a pages slash title of the page slash index.html. So that when you edit in Hacks, it's just saving the guts of those contents to those flat HTML files. Then you're ready to go live or whatever because you're just working on your computer and you hit publish in the UI. And I mean, you had to configure it ahead of time, but it'll ship that up to GitHub. So Hacks, uh, HacksTheWeb.org, is updated entirely through a user interface, um, clicking a button that says publish, using Hacks Editor to edit the pages, which is why there's so many damn memes. (laughs) And so um, there's almost no overhead associated with it. It publishes out to GitHub Pages. We pay for a URL. That's the the biggest
0: expense we have. Wow. I I don't want to overstate, too, that the way we started and the way we finished here, I think, is important for folks. So one of the first uh, things we said early on was... This idea of HTML, basic HTML, is the foundation of building websites. And when you start thinking about custom elements, you're peeling back that layer and you're looking towards that nuggety center. And I know that it gets technical. I'm going to throw links in our show notes for folks if you want to dig into the uh, MDN stuff for it and figure out like how technically they're implemented. Look at it for Gutenberg, whatever. Yes. That stuff is hard. It takes work. Uh, I'm sure, Brian. How long have you been working on this project now? Oh, uh, I have been a front end <laughs> developer for two years. So two years he's been digging into this, and they're truck, you know, trucking along, doing great. Um, but it has been distilled down to the point that you don't have to think about npm or you know, yarn or any of these things download a map install package, throw it on your site, boom, you have it. And I think that's incredibly important to emphasize that while it sounds very technical, you don't have to be that technical to get started in it and to start researching it and learning about it a couple of clicks and you can have it up and running. Um, I think that's, I mean, that's a great teaching tool. It's a great learning tool Um, and it's a great way to kind of, it's, you know what it is? It's that difference between learning guitar, and I know tabs, I know some chords, but I don't know scales. I don't know music theory, and I've started using uh, what is it? Uh, not Guitar Hero, but the the one on uh, it, it's on Steam and whatnot. And you can actually plug a guitar into your computer, and it starts challenging you and doing all this, doing all this stuff with it. Um, uh, this feels like that. It's this idea of being able to say, you know what, I see that there's a bunch of technical stuff underpinning all this, but I need that stopgap. And being able to say, hey, I'll just go grab your MAMP install and throw that up, and now I can have it running and play with it and, and try my hand at it and use that to start better understanding those underpinnings and, and that methodology uh, is incredibly useful. And that's, it's awesome that you've been able to do that and make it available. And I'm going to, I'm going to make sure to throw a link uh, to that as well in our show notes, because like you said you finished it today and that's something to be proud of.
1: <laughs> I mean, I started it today too. So yeah. So see, the, there you the, go. There's the a map install. There's how
0: quickly, and but easily... I mean,
1: that's the, that's the commitment that our team has to empowering every person on earth to better broadcast, right? Like if, if you are a front end junkie, then you're going to love to dive into our tooling, like our, our um, LRN web components repo that does all that stuff. Uh, we were having trouble just communicating between team members, all the things you just mentioned, right? Like, Oh, do you have the right version of your uh, yarn? Oh yeah. crap. Oh, yeah. I have this over here. <laughs> right. So um, we have the LRN web components repo actually came from another repo. There's a repo called WC factory, um, which is short for web component factory. And The idea is that if you can install Yarn and if you can run this one command, you now run like WCF element and it will step through and automate the building of new elements and do it in a monorepo. So you don't have to know how we set up LRN web components in the same regard because we want anyone, no matter what their skill level is, to be able to plug in and contribute uh, to something. Like if you know MAMP, and you can you understand what the word MAMP means, and you know how to go to GitHub and hit download zip, and then put those files in the right place, and then power on MAMP. Why shouldn't you be allowed to broadcast on the web just as much as you know Rob Dodson, that that is a developer advocate for a major project in Silicon Valley?
0: Yeah, and like, if uh, if anybody's interested, uh, if even even if the MAMP is a little too high up your skill train at that point. We'll have a link. If you go to hackstheweb.org, look under their integrations area, um, there is a Hacks plugin. We'll have a link to that. It's You have to d- download it from GitHub, right? Is it not in the uh, WordPress repo?
1: Yeah, I don't. So, I mean, I'm not a WordPress developer, so I don't entirely know how <laughs> to get it into the WordPress repo. Um, I also feel like there might be some hostility there run, when I go to you, you have to run a lot of but, tests. Um, but yeah, I have it. There's a WordPress... Uh, There's so yeah, a WordPress the, plugin.
0: Download the WordPress plugin from their GitHub, upload it to your WordPress install, and you can have the Hacks Editor running right inside WordPress. So, uh, Folks, stick with us. We're going to take just a quick break here, and we will meet you back in about, oh, I don't know, 70 seconds, let's say. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash That's nucloudcom slash drunken UX. Folks, thanks for hanging out with us this evening to talk about block editing and uh, the hacks and hack CMS projects. Uh, Brian, man, thanks for taking your time this evening to sit down with us. And even though it's before April Fool's Day, I I probably should have come up with a good joke for this episode. I didn't. Uh, I I am the joke. That's really what this comes down to. So with that in mind, um, man, take a couple minutes, tell everybody where they can find you, what you got going on, where they can find hacks and, and whatever else you want to tell them. So, uh, thank you for having
1: me, Michael. It's been awesome. It's always good to talk to people that are critical of things. I'm,
0: I'm good at, uh, yeah, I speak my mind occasionally.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, it's, it's really important that we not just accept the status quo from the power brokers that happen to have been able to write PHP or JavaScript before us. Um, because there's a lot more people not involved in these conversations as a result of those blocks, uh, those barriers. So, um, Uh, My name is Brian Ollendike. I'm at BTO Pro on Twitter and basically every other platform that's out there. Uh, I get pretty damn ranty on Twitter, particularly around Gutenberg, particularly around um, learning ecosystems and things, uh, because the options there are pretty crappy. Um, But if you want to learn more about Hacks of the Web or play with Hacks, um, Hacks of the Web, H-A-X-T-H-E-W-E-B.org is the website to do that. Um, the website is actually running hack CMS. So if you want to see a site that can be produced, with hack CMS, go there. If you go to the themes section, it will actually dynamically swap out the theme. So you can see what some of our other themes are that we've been working on. Um, and if you want to just edit a page and deface it, you can hit edit and just start manipulating stuff. Um, it's running a headless version of the headless authoring system, which is the joke. itself. um, so it doesn't save anywhere, um, basically, but, um, but it lets you play with it, get a sense of what it is. Uh, We currently have integrations in Clear's Throat. Three, two, one. WordPress, Drupal 6, Drupal 7, Drupal 8. We'll have Drupal 9 when that comes out. Why? Because it's a damn tag on the interface. It's not that hard, people, okay? Um, uh, Backdrop CMS, which is a fork of Drupal. Grab CMS, which is a static uh, uh, HTML, or sorry, markdown uh, manipulator. Um, So... We're going to be working on a desktop app later this year, um, and uh, we're going to be rolling out uh, more courses come fall using not just the editor, but actually using Hack CMS. Um, Hack CMS, as Michael brought up to me beforehand, Hack CMS doesn't work in Edge or IE 11, and that's actually a known issue and by design at the moment. The Hacks Editor itself does, however, work in those platforms, and every other element we make works in every platform. Um, it, we're coming up with a different way of solving that problem. Instead of serving you a, a really poor user experience in those platforms, we're actually just going to serve you a different way of rendering the site entirely. It's it's iframes. I'm just going to serve <laughs> you a whole ton of iframes. This can go in your in your April Fool's uh, joke part. So it's, um, we're going back. We're taking the web back to the platform. It's just going to be iFrames. And the iFrames are going to be uh, Furby pop-ups. And the Furby pop-ups will then indicate to you, upgrade your damn browser. Um, I would also argue, and this is you know, it's supposed to be a plug here, but um, Edge is going to be less of an issue come later this year, uh, just because yeah. Edge is yeah. being hollowed out in its internals and it's going to run on top of Chromium, um, which was a huge announcement at the end of last year. Um, obviously, that doesn't mean, you know, like the day it happens, the problem is solved. But um, they did just release a tech preview associated with it at a, at a conference. And it looks pretty damn good, actually, um, for how early on it is. So uh, I really think that's going to be less and less of an issue. If you never adopt hacks or you think I'm a lunatic, please, for the love of God, just go to webcomponents.org and realize that this standard <laughs> is going to come crashing down like a giant wave. And it's going to wash the world clean of React, hopefully. Um, I mean, of of, of all platform-specific nonsense. So, um, I, I encourage you to check out webcomponents.org more than any of the other projects that I am affiliated with. Um, or if you want to read my my mad ramblings, it's btopro.com.
0: I uh, yeah, the the edge thing was a good call. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, switching to Chromium does resolve a lot I think uh, in the long run and I didn't I forgot to bring it up I said it earlier and then we totally uh, cruised by it at 60 miles an hour but the the video player tag that you guys made and, and the reason I wanted to just bring it up was because it's not just a video player they baked in the video with a transcript all right there nice and compartmentalized you feed it what an SRT file right and yeah if, if you look at the dom it's like
1: two lines of code and it gives you um what i would say should hopefully be the world's most accessible video player on the internet uh as well as feature rich because nikki is
0: crazy yeah it's so it's impressive um, i've am amazed
1: it's it's now the uh centerpiece on hacks the web uh, org. so it'll show a video and if you click the video you'll see the transcript But we don't just stop there folks uh we it's a interactive transcript that's searchable and that uh scrolls with you as the video is playing and that you can click and jump to and if you scroll down the page it'll stick you to the side of the side of the window just like cnn or any of those others um all yours for a simple npm or yarn install
0: yeah so there you go if you want to know what's really possible if you ever thought it was hard to do accessible video uh it's not it, 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 with the right technology. So, folks, thanks for sitting down with us this evening. If you want to check us out, uh, we are on Twitter and Facebook slash drunken UX, uh, Instagram slash drunken UX podcast. We'll have all the things in all the places wherever we can. Um, and, hell, the only other thing I guess I have left to say is Brian, thank you so much for sitting down with us this evening. And for everybody out there listening at home or in your car or on the train or whatever you're doing, There's only one piece of advice I know how to give you, and that's to keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye.